2 Samuel chapter 4 this morning, and just quick uh, where we are in the story. Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and now Abner, his commander, is dead, killed by Joab, uh, murdered in the town of David in Hebron. And uh, we're coming to um, chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm going to let that be the introduction because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Benah, and the name of the other was Rechab. I want to pause here for just a moment because the writer is about to do something sort of strange. He's going to interrupt this story right in the middle to tell us about something that actually happened years ago when Saul died. Okay, Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the writer is about to tell us the story of how Ishbosheth died. But right in the middle of the story, he stops to tell us about Saul's grandson. This young man is about to be the only member that we know of, of Saul's household, left alive. And it's strange that he's telling us this because Mephibosheth would never be king because of his condition. And he had no claim to the throne anyway because he was Jonathan's son. And Jonathan had publicly uh, renounced the throne of his father in favor of David. And so this is a strange insertion into the story. Nevertheless, the writer thought it was important to mention him at just this moment, and we'll come back to it. But let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Bena set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bena, his brother, escaped. Text goes on to tell us that they also beheaded him and then traveled by night to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, this story should sound a little bit familiar because it is very similar to the death of Saul and the story of the Amalekite in chapter 1, where he claimed to have killed Saul and then took his head. And these men think that they're doing David a favor. They even use theological language to explain what they did and why they did it. 
We were instruments of God to accomplish His will, they say. That's the story that they give David. Now, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rem and the Beerothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, David says, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet, there's that little bit again, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. <clears throat> so David, on the spot, judges these men. They suffer the exact same judgment as the Amalekite. And here's the thing. It was technically true that God used those men to accomplish His will. That's true. But, they also did something that was wicked. It was also murder. And this is one of those situations where I think I need to pause and just kind of explain this because it's, it happens a lot in the Bible and you kind of read over it. But if you think about it, if you're struggling with the idea that God can use murder to accomplish His will, because that's what happens. Remember that the Bible sees no contradiction between the free actions of men, the things that we decide to do, and the sovereign will of God. The Bible presents both of those things as true, and there's never a contradiction between them. Case in point, if you're struggling with this idea, is the death of Jesus, right? Let me think about it. Listen to how Peter describes the death of Jesus at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see that? I mean, they're both there, right beside each other. Okay, Was it the plan of God for Jesus to be crucified? Or was Jesus killed by lawless men? Yes. Both. They're both true. There's no contradiction from God's perspective between man's free will and God's sovereign will. Can I explain that to you? Absolutely not. <laughs> the Bible does it. It's a mystery. But it's there. It's plain. Now let's get back to David. David's um, guiltless so far in the story, okay? God's plan was obviously to get David to the throne, but to keep David free from guilt. So David inherits the kingdom 
without killing anyone except people that needed to be killed, like that had murdered, right? And so his kingdom will at least begin as a kingdom of justice and righteousness, the way the Bible describes good kingship. Um, David's rise to power was messy and violent. There's a lot of like beheadings and stabbings and all this stuff going on around him, but none of the guilt was on David. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. And the reason I think it's so clear and such an important story is because it's supposed to foreshadow the humiliation and exaltation of Christ Jesus. See, what makes the cross such a glorious plan is that somehow God had worked it out that Jesus was able to carry the guilt of his people while himself remaining personally sinless, which is what made Jesus the perfect atonement. It made him the perfect scapegoat for our sin. And it was also the perfect beginning to a perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness. Okay, so I just wanted you to see that connection between David and Jesus. But now, finally, we have come to the moment when David is actually going to become king over the entire nation. And I, I, I don't want to just jump right into it because we've been talking about this now for like months. Okay, when is David actually going to become king of Israel? What's about to happen? Okay, so drum roll. Chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> this is a big deal. Okay, It's hard to overstate. It's a big deal. Then all the tribes of Israel came to, he- to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Underline that in your Bible. Okay? In times past, when Saul was king over us, It was you who led out and brought in Israel. You could also underline led out and brought in. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So there it is. Now, if you're counting, this is actually the third time that David was anointed. The first time was by Samuel as a teenager. The second time was when he became king of Judah, which was about six or seven years prior to this. And now he's being anointed for a third time and he's going to be king over all Israel. In other words, the kingdom of David, according to the Old Testament, was gradually expanding. David was king in God's sight from the day Samuel anointed him, right? And in some ways you could say from birth. But not everybody recognized David as king. So his kingdom is growing, and that is supposed to, really obviously, foreshadow the way God's kingdom is supposed to grow in Jesus Christ. And Jesus used a lot of parables 
specifically to explain that principle about the growth of the kingdom, more and more people will recognize the rule of Christ. Now, who's king over the universe? Jesus, right? Who's king over everything? God. Over every soul that's ever been born on the earth. God, right? But everybody doesn't recognize that. Everybody doesn't worship and serve King Jesus as the king of the universe. And so what Jesus was teaching about the kingdom is that more and more people will recognize his rule over time. And that's exactly what we've seen throughout history, right? More and more people coming into the kingdom, literally, didn't worship, and now they're worshiping the king. People are worshiping Jesus, the risen Christ, from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And I just want to pause here and say that to me, that is, in my opinion, if you're a skeptic, the most powerful apologetic, the most powerful defense of Christianity in some ways for someone outside the church is just simply to look at the world and be like, how in the world did this religion from ancient Palestine become so global? How is that possible? Um, you don't see that in other religions. Anyways, that's just a side note. Um, But there's some other things that we can learn here about our relationship to Christ and His kingdom from this text that I thought were really, really helpful. Notice that this is the first time that the word shepherd is used alongside king in the Bible. And that's who David was, right? He was the shepherd when Samuel found him. And I think that this was God's intention to establish this new kingdom where the king would be known primarily as a humble, loving servant. He's both exalted and lowly at the same time, right? And that's, of course, how Jesus wants to be known by his people. Jesus is a wise and just king. He's also a good king. Second thing... Look at the language that's used. Let me go back to verses 1 and 2. Look at the language that's used by the people in verses 1 and 2. It says, we are your bone and flesh. In other words, they're saying to David, you are one of us. You belong to us. We're one with you. This is actually husband language, okay? So this is marriage language. If you go back to Genesis 2, this is what Adam said to Eve, right? You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They also tell David that he's the one who led them out and brought them in. What they're talking about there is David's leadership in battle. Going out and coming in in Hebrew is... Military language, okay? So they're saying, you are our leader. You're the one who actually went out into battle with us. You were there with us in the battle. Which is also kind of savior language. And then finally, what they say to David is they quote back to him the promise of God. They say, Yahweh said to you. In other words, David 
they understand is the fulfillment of God's promise about a good king. So you put all this together and you've got at the same time in these men's um, testimony as they anoint David for the final time, you've got here prophetic language, priestly language, and kingly language all in the same two verses. Which means that David then is at least for the moment foreshadowing one of the most important principles of Scripture. What is known as the Emmanuel principle of the Christ. That's what's going on here. David was one of them. David was with them. And he was the fulfillment of God's promises to them. But in a much greater sense, Jesus is the king who is one of us. The king who is with us. And the king who is the fulfillment of God's promises to God's people. This is what's so beautiful. Jesus is literally, literally bone and flesh. He is the great shepherd king. He is the great high priest. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And you know what this tells us? This tells us something about the way God operates. Because if you look at this in context and all the mess that we've had to read up to this point, okay, Israel is now entering into what's kind of thought of as its golden age. But up until now, I mean, think about Judges. Think about 1 Samuel. Think about all the bloody, violent nonsense that we have studied over the last year and a half. And now we're here. But what does this tell us about God? You know, history, human history is a mess. And if we only look at individual snapshots, then then we may find ourselves very confused and discouraged by what we see, right? You could look at one difficult thing in history and ask yourself, Why did God let this happen? Why was this part of the plan? My dad um, was rummaging through some of his parents' things this week, and he found a journal that my grandfather started when he left training camp for World War II. This was 1944. And in it, my, my grandfather, William, wrote details of his voyage across the United States and then across the Atlantic Ocean. And apparently, and I never knew this, my dad never knew this, but according to this journal, his infantry division landed in France a few months after D-Day and they participated in what's known as the Battle for Brest, Brest, France. But then right after he tells about that, The journal abruptly ends, just two pages in, and the rest of it is blank. And what's interesting is that even though my grandfather didn't write anything else in the journal, he stayed in Europe until the war ended. And then he never talked about the war to anybody. My dad can't ever remember him saying a word about it. 
To my knowledge, nobody knows anything about his time in here. And I have no idea what my grandfather saw, but because of modern cinematography, I can imagine some of those snapshots, some of those horrors of war. And if you only had that, if you only had that picture of humanity, that puts sin and death in stark contrast to the kingdom of God, God, does it not? Eisenhower, who of the same war, said this. He said, I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. If you think about it, there's been a lot of war leading up to David's kingship. And, there, and it's not done. The, the chapter is going to end with more war. So David assumes the throne of Israel and then he immediately takes an army to conquer what would become Jerusalem. Because you know he's not there yet. The city of David is not yet the city of David. So it was no easy feat. And the reason that the Israelites had not yet conquered the city of Jerusalem is because the Jebusites who lived there had a stronghold in the city that no one knew how to conquer. I mean, it was impenetrable. And listen to what they said to David. This is the Jebusites speaking to David. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Thinking... David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Here's how he did it. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack, quote, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. This is a, a fascinating little detail that the writer adds. And so let me try to explain this. So the Jebusites are standing inside their stronghold, shouting out to the, to the armies of David. And they're mocking David by saying that our stronghold is so impervious to your attacks that even the blind and the lame could defend it. Okay? So you're not getting in here and we could put some blind people on the walls and you wouldn't get in. That's what they're saying to David. But David figures out a way to get around their defenses, we think, by sending his armies up a water shaft in the middle of the stronghold, which would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do. And yet somehow they managed to do this. And then there's this strange statement at the end of the verse, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. We're not even really sure what that means, okay? But no one thinks that David was actually, um, you know, that he hated people with disabilities, right? Or that, 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 of course, that's not what he means. And we know this because in a few chapters, David is actually going to show kindness to that young boy, Mephibosheth, that I told you about earlier. And we're going we're gonna to have a good time dealing with that in a couple of weeks. Um, so what does this mean? When David says the lame and the blind are hated by David's soul, I think what he's talking about are the enemies of God 
just in general, right? So he, they've been mocking him, and he's mocking them back, and he's basically saying, you're, you're God's enemies. And so when you get to this, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, he's talking about the enemies of God being cast out. Not welcome. But, I want you to consider the fact that everywhere else in Scripture that I could find, the blind and the lame, when they're mentioned together like that, are always mentioned with compassion. Not as enemies of God, but as objects of God's faithfulness and love. Everywhere else but here. In Job 29, Job demonstrates his righteousness by being eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. In Jeremiah 31, God promises to gather to himself people from the farthest corners of the earth. And he says, among them will be the blind and the lame. And then, of course, Jesus, when he announces his ministry, and every time he describes it to people, what does he say? The blind will see and the lame will walk. But when you put all of that in context following 2 Samuel 5, what does that teach us? I think it means this. That the enemies of God, the one whom David calls the blind and the lame, the ones who would never be allowed into the house... God actually made a way for them to come into the house. And not just to come, but to belong. And not just to belong, but to be healed. To see again. To walk again. And brothers and sisters, that's us. That's us. We who have no right to enter the house of God or to be included in His family certainly wouldn't be crawling up any water shafts to get in there, right? We who would not be able to find our way into God's house would not be able to walk our way in if we, if we could walk if we had any righteousness of our own, He figured out a way to bring us in and seat us at His table. Now please hear me. I don't know... I know what some of you are going through. I don't know everything that's going on in this room. I know some of you are discouraged and sad and you don't feel like God's hearing your prayers. And you're begging for relief. And it may not feel like much today, but God is at work. He's at work. And I just want to remind you, I tried my best to make the, the, you know, the ascension of David to the throne a big deal because do you realize it has been 800 years since God made the promise to, to Abraham? until the moment when David is crowned and actually takes Jerusalem. 
800 years to answer one promise. But God was at work. God is at work. And in time, Jesus has promised us that He will conquer all of His enemies. Sin and death will be conquered. The blind will see. The lame will walk. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more tears. Because our Emmanuel is with us. And that's what this table reminds us of this morning. Um, It's the table of the Lord Jesus. And it is a picture for us. That Jesus is still, in this moment, risen in the flesh. He is bone and flesh. He is of us. He is one of us. He became like us for us. And that's what this table reminds us of as we take the bread and the, the juice. It's just a... It doesn't feel like much, right? There's a great promise tied to it. And it's just supposed to be a taste, just a, just a simple taste to remind us that in the mess of history, in the mess of your lives, God has made promises that He intends to keep and they're secured in the blood of Jesus. And so as you come this morning, I pray that you would be encouraged by that. Simple as it is, it is a powerful means of grace. Let's pray now and ask God to bless it as such. Lord Jesus, we come to You grateful for Your sacrifice, grateful for um, You making a way for us into the city of God, into the house of God, which is what Jerusalem represents. And one day You've told us that there will be a new city, Jerusalem, that will come down out of heaven and we will dwell with You forever. And Lord, as we come to this table now, I pray that You would remind us of these things, that we would be encouraged no matter where we are right now in our hearts, that we would find You to be a God of grace and a God of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He broke bread and offered it to His disciples and said, This is My body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, he took the cup, said this cup represents the new covenant which is in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. Um, I want to ask an elder, whoever's passing you come and just stand down here with me. We're going to have you all come down the middle aisle and then go back to your seats. And the cups are stacked uh, just to make it simple. Um, the cup on the bottom has the bread, and so just come get both cups. Y'all can just come down in rows.